Good morning. We're in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 22 this morning. And for those of you who are visiting, if you will, <clears throat> bear with us for just a moment. We're going to do a little bit of memory work here as we start out each class. Uh, we're doing chapter summaries in Acts 16. What begins in Acts 16? Second missionary journey. What cities? Or what city? Philippi, and a notable event there in that chapter, Paul and Silas are in prison. Chapter 17, Athens, TBA, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, if that helps you, it helps me, TBA, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, chapter 17. Chapter 18, Corinth, and two people, notable people there. Aquila and Priscilla, you guys are doing very good at this, very good. <clears throat> Chapter 19, Ephesus, and then what happens there? An event, the riot in Ephesus. Chapter 20, where did they observe the Lord's Supper? Troas, a very significant visit there in Troas. And then last part of chapter 20, the speech to the elders at Ephesus. Chapter 21. Jerusalem. Paul goes back to Jerusalem and what happens to him there? Uh, he's beaten and arrested. All right. <clears throat> we'll... Uh, leave that for now. Now, let's go into chapter 22, and wanted to look at these couple of these, these are depictions of what the temple during the day of, or during the first century would have looked like, based upon archaeological evidence. Just gives you a little bit of idea for what it's worth, what Paul might have been looking at, visiting uh, Jerusalem. You see the very center part of that, the old uh, part of the, what we would think of the temple area, the court, and then the, the temple itself. And this, all this outer part is what would be built upon later is uh, called Herod's temple, when Herod built the temple. <clears throat> this will give you a little bit closer look here, if I can get this. Well, if I turn it on, it'll work better, right? Okay, this will give you a little closer look here. The court of the Gentiles on the outside, and then the wall would be the uh, place where the Jews would go, and then the temple, the tallest part of that temple building. Again, this is just a depiction of what it may have looked like, just if it helps you in any way. Now, we get into chapter 22, what we left off with in chapter 21 was Paul being beaten Paul being arrested, and uh, the Roman authorities protect him from what probably would have been certain death. But I want you to back up for just a minute and pretend with me. Let's back up to chapter 21, back up to Corinth, and imagine you're Paul in Corinth, and you have not read the rest of this book. You have not read the rest of Acts 22 through Acts 28. You've never read that before. 
Imagine you're Paul in Greece and you're planning your next phase of your ministry and you plan all these places you want to go preach and minister to. And maybe you write a letter to the high priest and say, I'd like, uh, some, uh, I'd like to speak to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. I'd like to have their undivided attention. And maybe you write a letter to the Sanhedrin. I'd like uh, a meeting with all of you, and I would like to discuss with you the gospel. Maybe you write a letter to the Roman ruler, Felix. So I'd like, a, I'd like uh, a meeting with you and have all of your undivided attention. Maybe to Herod Agrippa, I'd like a meeting with you and all of your undivided attention. And maybe you'd be so bold as to say, I think I'll write a letter even to the Roman emperor and see if I can have a, a discussion with him and all of his household. Do you think that would have happened? Do you think that would have come to fruition? I imagine the high priest would get the letter and say, who is uh, Paul? Uh, and even if he knew him, he would probably say, absolutely not. Sanhedrin would say the same thing. All these leaders would, would look at it and go, are you kidding me? Never. Why would? Who are you and who do you think you are? But as we go forward and we read what happens, actually happens in the book of Acts, it's amazing, really, the, the audiences that he is able to speak to, many times with, with their undivided attention, that would have never happened. Had it not been for the series of events that led to this, the arrest and what we would call the providence of God, working it out so that he can have this opportunity. He would have never had these opportunities, but now he does. I want you to pause there and think about just a minute before we head into this section of Acts, how many opportunities God puts us into, and sometimes we dismiss them. Sometimes we don't take advantage of those because they don't occur in a sequence or way that we desire or think they should. But Paul here is having an opportunity to speak to all these different audiences. Let's outline it like this. Chapter 22, the Jews on such a day where he could have their undivided attention. He would have never gotten that before. The Sanhedrin in chapter 23, Felix in chapter 24, Festus in chapter 25, Herod Agrippa in chapter 26, and I'll add this in chapter 27, a boat full of uncivilized sailors. They would have never given him that opportunity to be there to, to witness these things that, that he was going to do for them. The island of Malta, these uncivilized people, we might call them, chapter 28. The Roman emperor, his household, chapter 28. So as we go forward into this, I want you to realize that things might not be happening to Paul in the way that he desired 
If he wrote it down on a piece of paper, the plan of his ministry, he probably didn't write it out this way, but it happened and he took advantage of it. And it's up to us sometimes to see the opportunities that are right before our face and we don't take advantage of those opportunities. Now let's go into uh, one, one other thing I wanted to touch on here before we launch into our passage. Luke chapter 21, Jesus says something to the apostles before he leaves the earth. It's, it's very, I guess, critical in this stage here. Luke 21, verse 12, he said, before all these things, and that's the talking about the uh, prediction of the Jerusalem destruction, they shall lay their hands upon you, this is Luke 21, verse 12, and they shall persecute you, deliver you up to synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake, it shall turn out unto you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your heart not to meditate beforehand how to answer. It goes on to say, it shall be given you in that day what you will say. So we're going to see Paul in that specific instance where he is before rulers and people of that nature and no doubt probably seeing this come to light. God is giving him what to say and how to say it. Now let's go to our text, Acts chapter 22. It begins, brethren, notice, uh, understand too that this is the address before a crowd, a large crowd of Jews that have tried to kill him. And he addresses them, verse 1, brethren and fathers, hear you the, the defense that I make unto you. And when they heard that he spoke in what language, they got even more quiet. Their language, the Hebrew language. So two things already. Paul, I want you to notice here that Paul is trying to identify with these people. Brethren and fathers is a term that that Stephen used as he addressed the people in Acts 7. Brethren and fathers. And then he addresses them in the Hebrew language. Paul is so well suited to talk to these people in their own language. Well, don't you think their ears probably perked up? Verse 3, I am a Jew. And notice how many verses we're going to see that Paul is identifying himself with the Jews. As to say that I, I am one of you, but we're going to see the conversion that took place. Verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia. But brought up in this city, Jerusalem, that's where we are today. I, brought, I was brought up in this city and even at the feet of Gamaliel, a very notable person in the Jews, uh, in their council. I was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, instructed according to the strict matter of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. Last part of verse 3, again, to identify and to gain their favor, just as who? Just as you are, even as you are all this day. I even persecuted this way that that I'm part of, the way the Christians were called those of the way in verse 4. I persecuted these people 
to what extent? Even to death. This is all to be, uh, to gain their favor, to gain their attention, to make them aware of who Paul really is. I want you to think here for just a moment, too, about how many different audiences Paul spoke to. In Acts 17, we saw him speaking to people that were philosophers and, and uh, idolaters, didn't know the scriptures, and he approached them from where they were. Acts 17, you remember that, in Mars Hill? He's doing the same thing here. He's, he's, he understands his audience, and he caters his speech to his audience. Not to say that he's uh, two-faced or anything of that nature. He, all the while, is highlighting the Word of God without compromising. But at the same time, he understands who his audience is. Verse 5, also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, all those of the Sanhedrin, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and journeyed to Damascus to bring them also that were there, bring them back unto this place where we are today, unto Jerusalem, in bonds to be punished. I brought them back here. I got the decree from the high priest and the elders. And perhaps several of those that were there in that day are here today that they could ask, that they could verify these facts with. Go ask them. They'll tell you that I was the one that went and persecuted this way, went to Damascus, Acts chapter 9 as a reference. And then verse 6. Verse 6 begins the phase of the speech where he shifts and begins to talk about the conversion itself. Now, as a review, let's look at the first five verses here. His introduction is to gain favor with the Jews. He speaks in their language, addresses them as brothers and fathers. He identifies himself basically saying, I'm a I was a Jew of all Jews. I was a Jew of the strictest sect. Studied under Gamaliel, even went as far as persecuting the way unto death. I went as far as you could go. But something happened. On the way to Damascus, verse 6, verse 6 through 16 gives us Paul's conversion. Verse 6, it came to pass that as I journeyed, or as I made my journey, and drew nigh to Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. Now, as we get into this part of the reading, I want you to think about not so much the differences in the conversion accounts from here in Acts 9, but I want you to realize... Maybe a couple of differences is that this is Paul's firsthand account of the uh, conversion himself. The one we saw previously was the Holy Spirit's con uh, account 
through the hands of Luke. This account is from the perspective of Paul himself. And it is also told with that mindset who his audience is. Remember, he is seeking to save these people. Romans 9, verse 1 through 4, we talked about that last week. He wants so much to help these people be saved that they've tried to beat him and kill him, and he still wants a word with them to teach them the gospel, to give them his testimony. Verse 6, I fell to the ground after I saw this great light and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And what was his answer? Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, verse 8, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Many people there in attendance at that time probably remember a Jesus of Nazareth. Notice he doesn't quite identify him yet as Christ, the Messiah. He doesn't identify him that, that way at this point, but he will. And he identifies him as Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 8, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me beheld indeed the light, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. The difference here, some, some note a difference here, particularly in verse 9, and the account in chapter 9, and find a, uh, what some would call a discrepancy in the way uh, that it's worded. Here he says, they heard not the voice, and the idea really is that they understood not the voice. Let's go back to Acts chapter 9 very quickly. And verse 7, Acts chapter 9, verse 7, the men that journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but beholding no man. But we go back to Acts 22, look at verse 9. And they that were with me beheld the light, but they heard not the voice. The idea is that they could not understand the voice uh, more so. Sometimes we use that same kind of language. I didn't hear you. Well, I heard a sound coming from you, but I didn't discern or I didn't quite understand what it was you said. Sometimes we use a similar type uh, language like that. Verse 10. And I responded here in verse 10. He said, I, I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go to, into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee all of the things which are appointed for thee to do. And Acts 9 will phrase it, all the things that thou must do. I like that wording in Acts 9. It'll be told to you all the things that you must do. Now, verse 11, when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. Now, is he saved at this point? We pause here and consider that. And uh, sometimes we look at that in Acts chapter 9. Is he saved here at this point? Absolutely not. He's told in what direction to go to find salvation. Verse 12, one Ananias, a devout man. And notice how he addresses or identifies Ananias to this Jewish audience. This Ananias, a devout man, according to the law 
And perhaps again, there are some in attendance here today that knew Ananias, that knew his reputation. And he says, Ananias is one that was held in high regard by many. Verse 12, he was a devout man according to the law, well reported of all the Jews that dwelt there in Damascus. He came unto me and standing by me, he said, receive thy sight. Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And in that very hour, I was able to look upon him. So at this point, we stop right here. We basically have a physical healing, don't we? He receives his sight. Ananias has given him a sight back. He's healed him physically. Now, what about his spiritual condition? No. He's not healed uh, spiritually, is he? Verse 14, he said, the God of our fathers, notice again that, that those terms and phrases to identify with the Jews. Verse 14, the God of our fathers. I think he's hearkening back to the, the idea that the God of our fathers in the Old Testament, that God hath appointed thee to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. I believe that term righteous one is, again, one that that Stephen himself used when he addressed the largely Jewish audience on the day that he was stoned. He used that term, the righteous one, identifying, of course, Jesus Christ. He hath appointed thee to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For thou shalt be a witness for him unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. Now let's go back to Acts 9 for just a moment. Acts 9 verse 15. We'll see exactly here what it was that God wanted him to do, his mission from here going forward. Acts 9 verse 15. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way. For he is a chosen vessel. He's talking to Ananias, but he's talking in reference to Paul the Apostle. Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now we go back to Acts 22. That, I think, is elaborating on what verse 15 here says. That he'll be a witness for me me unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, what happens in verse 16? We've seen the physical healing. What happens in verse 16? The spiritual healing. God heals us in physical ways, and He heals us spiritually. There's so many times we see both of those. But here we see it definitely in in regard to Paul. He had the physical healing of his sight restored. And Acts 16, he says, Arise, be baptized, washing away your sins. There's a connection between washing away your sins and being baptized. How much urgency did Ananias give to Paul on this day about baptism? How urgent was it? 
Very, very urgent. And we'll pause here just to think about verse 16 in and of itself. If you're considering baptism or know anyone that is, it is imperative upon us to help them to realize in verse 16 here the urgency with which we consider salvation and baptism and washing away our sins. Okay, now let's pause here for any thoughts or comments. Anyone? Got one over here? I think verses 8 and 10 hold the two questions that all of us must ask daily, but particularly the center is, who is Jesus and what does he want me to do? Mm-hmm. And we have to constantly remind ourselves of who we are in that, in that matter. Mm-hmm. We go back to our, our mission and uh, simplify it very uh, much. Who am I? What am I here for? What, am I, what is my purpose? Yes, one more back here. I just wanted to say, Paul used his past to, re- to get this audience to relate to them. And um, we can do the same. You know, not all of us were good people before we became Christians. And sometimes if you let people know what has happened and why you've changed and why you are a Christian and what, why it works... That converts people because they're mm-hmm. thinking, well, this person is no different than what I am. So if this person can be saved, so can I. Mm-hmm. We, sometimes we, we might be a little bit too reserved in, in, in that. And uh, there is a benefit to identifying with people. Now, I was once where you are. I didn't believe or I didn't quite have the understanding that I do now. And and. We need to try to identify, and uh, sometimes we forget to try to identify with people in that way. Yes? I find it incredibly interesting that Paul has made it this far, and they are, uh, the, the Jews are listening to him, even after he's mentioned Jesus. And I think there's a very good reason for this. Um, Paul was one of them. He was very well acquainted with this council. They knew everything he was about, and they knew he had left for Damascus. And what happened to Saul? He didn't just evaporate. What happened to him? What happened to all the people that traveled with him? I don't think there's a chance in the world that this this event didn't uh, get related back to the people who had sent them out. Um, And so to hear Paul's account of these things... Maybe they're reluctant to hear it or reluctant to admit it, but I think they knew that what he was saying up to this point was entirely true. Now, their prejudice, of course, um, it will, will trip them up and will uh, kind of put an end to their willingness to listen uh, here in a moment. Um, but even after mentioning the name of Jesus and the fact that you know Saul had met him and seen him, they're still listening to this and not mm-hmm. just trying to shut it up. Mm-hmm. I think they had to have gotten the impression that this, what he's saying is true. What, what else could account mm-hmm. for their champion just evaporating? And then they just don't hear anything from him again. Mm-hmm. Where did he go? And then, well, some people are saying he's now teaching the way. Mm-hmm. But that's, they had to know that this was um, a true account. Very true. 
All right, let's continue uh, verse 18, or verse 17, rather. It came to pass that when I had returned to Jerusalem, this place we are here today, where we all are gathered here, I, I returned to Jerusalem while I was there. I prayed in the temple. I fell into a trance and saw him saying unto me, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, because they will not receive testimony con- your testimony concerning me. And it apparently is, if we go back to Acts 9, 9 and verse 28, apparently uh, Paul here at this point is inserting something we don't see previously. Uh, in our verse, Acts 9, verse 28, he was with them going in and going out at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spake and disputed with the Grecian Jews that were there seeking to kill him. We find a lot more elaboration on what was going on at that point in time, apparently, from this account that Paul tells here. So while I was in a trance, God said to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem. They will not receive testimony concerning your testimony concerning me. I said, Lord, they themselves know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believe on thee. And even when the blood of Stephen, thy witness, this is something certainly they would identify with. When the blood of Stephen, thy witness was shed, I was the one standing there holding the coats of those people. So he seems to say to God here, "I, I want to speak to these people. I was one of them, but I've changed. Perhaps in some way... Paul is holding out hope that he can be the one that can reach their hearts. If anybody can reach their hearts, Paul is thinking that if anybody can, I can. But was that to be the case? By and large, no. God says even himself here, make haste, get out of Jerusalem for your own safety. They will not receive your testimony Yes, it's true, Paul preached to Jews and Greeks in the Roman Empire, and he saved many Jews. But by and large, in Jerusalem, where there's so much hostility, God even himself saw the wisdom, get out, because these people will not accept your testimony, even though it is is such a genuine and real testimony. You were one of them. You were a Jew of Jews. You know their language. You even persecuted these people of the way, and you've changed. And if they're not going to listen to that, which God says they're not going to listen to, you need to leave. This is a time when, as Jesus said, we cannot continue to cast our pearls before the swine, right? Verse twenty. One, he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far from hence unto the Gentiles. Uh Uh-oh. That's a very explosive word. We were talking a moment ago about him mentioning the name of Jesus. But there's two words that he can mention that really spark an explosion He does one in verse 21 here. That's the word Gentiles. They don't want to hear that word. They don't want to hear that 
in reference to salvation in any form or fashion. And the other one we'll see next week is the word, the resurrection. That one is a very explosive word in the right context as well. But here, as we look in verse 21, I think it's very tactful rather that that he uh, waited to this point to say the word Gentiles. If he had started his speech with the word Gentiles, how far do you think he would have gotten? Not very far. I, uh, he's repeating what God said to him, verse 21, depart. God says, I will send thee far away unto the Gentiles. Again, that's primarily the audience of the Gentiles. All right, let's uh, continue here. Any, any other thoughts here as we pause there in a paragraph? Verse 21. All right, verse 22. They gave him audience unto this word. That's what we were just saying. They listened until they got to this point. I guess we better, let's catch up on our uh, outline here too. Verse 17 through 21, the return to Jerusalem. He recounts that return. The Lord warned him that they would not receive his testimony. And then he said, depart, I will send you to the Gentiles. Now we pick up verse 22. They hear Paul say this and what, how do they respond? Now this is the first thing we've heard from them for a little while, and what do they say in verse 22? Away with him. He does not deserve to live. He's mentioned the word Gentiles in this holy place at a holy time when all of us Jews are gathered here together, and he's mentioned the word Gentiles. They cried out, and notice that, I want you to notice here as we go forward that who has the, who is the reigning power and the authority in this city? Is it, did the Jews have their own power and authority, their own civil authority? Who's keeping them under control? Gentiles, Romans. Now we continue, they, they throw a fit, casting dust into the air, throwing off their garments. Verse 24, the chief captain, or tribune, I think some of your versions say, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle, bidding that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know for what cause they had so shouted against him. So he allows him to speak. That apparently didn't work. Things are getting out of control again. So the Roman authorities say, okay, let's take him. And let's put him under the test of scourging and see what that does. See if we can get to the bottom of the problem. See if we can get to the heart of the matter here, the heart of the matter. And this is their typical method of doing so. Verse 25, when they had tied him up with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen? And uncondemned at that. And let's stop and think about that. We, we studied about that a little bit. But the Roman citizen had more, uh, I can't think of the word, benefits, I guess you'd say. A Roman citizen had many benefits that came with that. He had protections that came with that. You couldn't just beat a Roman citizen without any cause. 
And even if you had cause, you had to make sure you followed certain protocol. Paul was a Roman citizen. We've already seen before how that that helped him in Philippi. Remember that in Acts chapter 16 at the end of the chapter? He said, we're Roman citizens. Have them come and take us out of the prison. Have them come and do it. They've beaten us uncondemned men. So here he uses that ability, that civil ability that he has, the law on his side. Verse 25, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard it, what did he say? <laughs> we, better, we better back off here. We better back away and think about what we've done because we've already transgressed. But, so I want you to think here. For, let's, let's pause here as we finish out this paragraph. We've talked about the many things that have benefited Paul and his ministry. Many times we think about the Roman government as being an evil empire. We think about it being evil. And there are certain ways in which, yes, we can say it was. But what is Paul appealing to actually to save his skin this day? The Roman rule. We think about the Roman Empire being evil. But I want you to continue to consider how many different benefits that Paul has received on his journeys. He's had a peaceful time, by and large, to travel from city to city. Roads to travel from city to city. Ease of travel. And here again, the Roman authorities have already saved him from being killed, perhaps. And now he's appealing to his Roman citizenship for his protection. So let's don't entirely just write off the Roman Empire as evil and antagonistic to Christianity. We can work within the realm of authority, just like Romans 13 says. We can live even with the most evil of rulers. And we can live under their authority. And the gospel can flourish and work and in ways that we don't realize sometimes. Even though there are many things that they dictate to us that are evil and hard for us. Let's think about all the blessings that we have in a country like this today. That we have blessings to move and travel and and some level of peace. And a lot of times that strong iron-fisted government can create a peaceful somewhat empire or country or nation that allows these things to happen. So let's continue. I'm a Roman citizen, verse 26. When the centurion heard it, he went to the chief captain and told him, saying, What are you doing? For this man is a Roman we had no idea. He spoke the Hebrew language and he seemed like one of them. And well, I, verse 28 or verse 27, the chief captain came and said, tell me, are you Roman? And he said, yes. The chief captain answered with a great sum. I obtained this citizenship. But Paul responded by saying, yes, I understand that. But my citizenship was apparently gained 
by his uh, being born into uh, that. I am Roman born. Perhaps his father was a Roman. Seems to be the case. They then that were about to examine in verse 29 straightway departed from him. And the chief captain also was afraid when he knew that he was a Roman because he had bound him. And he himself is in danger now. So we have to tread very lightly with this sensitive situation that we have here. It's a very explosive situation, very volatile atmosphere here in Jerusalem. On the morrow, desiring to know the certainty whereof he was accused of the Jews... See verse 30, it's not one of those situations where we can put him in jail overnight and release him. It's not that simple, is it? It's not that easy. Sometimes people, you know, have, have a DUI or whatever, just lock him up, let him sober up, maybe let him go the next day. This is not a case like that. Verse 30, on the morrow, desiring to know the certainty whereof he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to come together. That would be the Sanhedrin council, what we call the Sanhedrin council. Verse uh, 30, have them come together and brought Paul down before them. Notice what's happening. This It's like a ping pong thing. Okay, the Jews have him. They're about to kill him. Now the, the Romans arrest him. And he says, can I speak to the Jews? Okay, I speak to the Jews, have license to the Jews. No, okay, that didn't work. We Romans say, okay, we're going to scourge him and squeeze it out of him that way. Well, that didn't work either. So now we're back, we're going back to the Jew, Jewish council. We're going back to the, their court and let their court try to figure this out. It reminds me of the back and forth that they did with Jesus in his day, the Jewish Council, then the Roman court, then back to the Jewish court. People don't know what to do with such a fellow as as Paul. <clears throat> Any thoughts or comments? We've got time for one. We got about a minute. Okay. I'm not, I'm not stopping here. I, I've always got comments. I'll fill up my time. You give, give me as much as you can. <clears throat> but I want us to consider what we, we brought up last week about Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 4. Paul has gone into the middle of a hornet's nest. He knew what was ahead of him. He knew that bonds and afflictions were there. He went anyway. It's not that he had a careless disregard for his life at all. That's not it. But what was it we saw in Romans 9, verse 1 through 4, that his mentality and his attitude toward, particularly in this context, the Jews, that caused him to go there? What was it that that highlighted about his attitude? He had a love for these people and their salvation. And he thought, if anybody can reach them, perhaps I can. From what I've been through, from who I was, perhaps if they'll listen, ever listen to anybody, they would listen to me. But that was not to be the case, was it? 
God was so right when he said, they will not heed your testimony. And they didn't. And so now we continue uh, the defense before the Gentiles. Okay, we'll stop there and pick back up in chapter 23 next week.